Well, good morning, River Ridge. So good to see you guys. For those guys out there, probably, just so you're probably thinking the same thing right now, it's up, up, down, down, left, right, left, right, be a start. Right? These uh, these bumper videos, man, it's like flashbacks for me going back to my days growing up. I grew up playing all kinds of arcades. But I remember one, one thing in particular. Growing up, every Saturday, I'd go with my mom down to the grocery store. And while she was shopping, I had three quarters to spend in the arcade games. And my, the, the game that, that captured me real early on was Miss Pac-Man, the fast version, of course. And over the course of many Saturdays, I honed my craft one quarter at a time. And I had all the patterns memorized. I went through every single level, cherry all the way up to banana and then mixed fruit, could play this thing forever. I got to be kind of a legend back home there when I was growing up. Uh, and so fast forward to about five or six years ago, and I was taking our oldest son, Aaron, out for pizza at Graziano's, and they had one of those machines where you could choose either Miss Pac-Man or Galaga. Now, now keep in mind that my legendary status was well chronicled in the Cobb household. The kids knew my status as the Miss Pac-Man champion, but he had never seen it firsthand. So he says, hey, Dad, while we're waiting on the pizza can we play a quick game? And I said, yeah, we can, but I'm telling you, pick Galaga. It will be no fun if you pick, pick Miss Pac-Man. So while I'm not looking, he quickly hits Miss Pac-Man thinking it's a funny joke. And I said, buddy, grab a seat. I'll call you when it's your turn. And I played for 15 minutes. The pizza came out. The pizza got cold before he ever even got up there. And <laughs> the legend still lives on. Well, uh, <laughs> thank you, thank you, thank you. <laughs> Well, we are in this series called Level Up, where we are taking a deep dive into the look of this book of the Bible called 2 Timothy. This is the Apostle Paul's last letter that that we think that he wrote, and it's written to his young protege, Timothy. Over the course of about three missionary trips, Paul had gone to this town called Ephesus, this major metropolitan area in modern-day Turkey, and he had established this great little church. And now he's handing over his baby to Timothy, and he keeps urging Timothy. He keeps reminding Timothy, Timothy, you've got to grow up. The the stakes are high here. You've got to grow up, and you have to take your leadership and take your life and your faith to the next level if you're going to lead this church well. And so what we've been doing over the last few weeks is kind of leaning in, peering in on this conversation, this letter that Paul wrote to Timothy, and learning how we also need to take our faith and our life up to the next level. And if you've missed any of the last couple weeks, you need to hop online and get caught up on there. But if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2. We'll be in the second half of that chapter here in just a few minutes. And we're not going to cover all of these verses today, but over the course of 13 verses, six different times, Paul talks about quarreling and fighting and disputing. Paul is going to tell Timothy, and he's going to tell us, You have to level up in your words. You have to level up in how you deal with the conflict that comes into your life. I I think most of us first learned how to handle conflict uh, on the third grade playground. You know, there would be some kind of life-changing conversation going on about who's the the, the best superhero or who's the the best uh, athlete of the time. And after about two sentences, those debates would quickly regress into, well, yeah, well, I think you're stupid. And then the, 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 the classic comeback and argument killer of all time, I know you are, but what am I? And I think, honestly, we never really grow up in how we deal with conflict. 
Uh, we never really outgrow those third grade tendencies. I, I deal with couples from time to time in my office and, and the conflict that they have and the disputes that they have, they have some kind of form of this, I know you are, but what am I kind of attitude. If you watch five minutes of one of those news shows that come on in the evening, it's nothing but name calling and shouting. You hop on Facebook or on Twitter and you start looking down through the comments section and all you see is just full of negativity and backbiting and vilifying whoever holds a different opinion than somebody else. And we all have that one coworker, that one family member that knows how to push the right button, that can needle us and kind of push us back into a corner and try as we might, we find ourselves getting sucked into an argument or a debate about some topic. We live in this emotionally charged day and age and it just seems like it's filled with conflict and it's happening at the water cooler at work, it's happening at the dining room table at home, it's happening with friends, it's happening online and our words have gotten away from us. And the accusations and the name-calling and the spouting off, it causes all kinds of damage to our relationships. Our hurtful words add up, and they ding a marriage. They destroy a friendship or a business partnership. It puts a strain on our relationships with our teenage kids. Well, the same thing was happening in the church of Ephesus, and people were getting hurt because of the words that people were using. There were some people in the church that were constantly trying to draw people into these theological debates, and it was fragmenting the church. So Paul has some strong words to say about words. And at the first part of this, he's going to paint a clear, pic- a clear picture for us about what careless words can do, what they can cause. And then he's going to give us three rules of engagement that will allow us to use our words to be a blessing and to bring healing and hope into our world. So if you have your Bibles, let's start in verse 14. And Paul starts off and he says, keep reminding them. This is the, these confrontations that we have, this problem that we have of getting drawn into disputes, it's an ongoing problem for us. And Paul is seeing the same things. Like you're going to have to keep reminding them of the importance of their words. Keep reminding them of these things. Warn them before God against quarreling about words. And he says, it's of no value. It, it doesn't bring advancement into the kingdom in any way. It, it's a waste of time. It's a waste of energy. It's sideways energy. And in fact, he says, what it does is it, it ruins those who listen to them. And that, that word ruin is really the, the word catastrophe. He's telling Timothy, you have to keep reminding them that the words that they are using have the potential to wreck the faith of other people. These meaningless words, these pointless debates, they build walls and they build roadblocks that prevent people from experiencing the goodness of God and the presence of God in their lives. Paul is telling us that our that our arguing with people, that the words that we use and the way that we fight has the potential to stall or derail someone's spiritual journey. This is a call for us to know the power of our words. How many of us know the damage, the big damage that small words can bring to a life? And if I were to ask you to name the moment in your life that was the most detrimental 
the one that caused the biggest pause, the one that caused the biggest hurt in your life. Most could name the place and the time when in the heat of an argument about something, someone said a, a sharp word about you and it just cut to the core. It was some kind of critical thing or they knew exactly the word to push the button or, or maybe because of the conflict that you were in with them, they retaliated after the fact by lying about you, by spreading some kind of gossip about you and it, it cut to the heart. And for a season, those words derailed your life. Those words consumed you for a season. Every time we open up our mouths, we have the power to either bring life or to bring ruin, to bring destruction, catastrophe into someone's life. It's a choice. And so what Paul is saying is, Timothy, teach them. You yourself remember don't add to the noise and the negativity that's going on around you. Use your words to add value to somebody's life. Use your words to bring joy and peace into their lives. Our words matter more than we know. Paul continues on and he says, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Paul now turns his attention and creates this analogy of a worker. And he, he's really bringing to mind a, like a stone worker who would have a pattern or a shape that they were trying to shape the different big stones in to build a structure. And so this worker would go and he would shape the stones and then present them to the foreman who would either approve them or reject them. And Paul's reminding Timothy that this takes work. That, that to be able to use our words for good, it takes work, it takes effort, and that there is an accountability to a set standard of how we talk. And the standard is that we are to be people who correctly handle the word of truth. That, that, that phrase that's translated as correctly handle is the word orthotomeo. It kind of brings to mind going to, to an orthodontist. It, it literally means to make a straight path. And in their day, it was used to describe cutting a path through a forest so that people could easily get from one point to another. In our day, we might use the analogy of, of building a, a straight interstate with easy on-ramps. When we correctly handle the word of truth, it means that our conversations, that our interactions with people build an easy path. It build an easy on-ramp for people to experience and to know the goodness of God and the grace of God in their lives. It means that we make it easy for them to know that our lives are directed by the word of God in our life. That our words are, are winsome. That our words are gracious. That they are loving. That, that when people around us, because of the words that we use, because of the conversations that we have with them, the, that they can experience the presence of God through us when we are around them. But when we engage in debate, when we engage in these meaningless and argumentative fighting, our interactions look more like the interstate between here and Scott Depot. I mean, it's full of speed bumps and detours and stop signs and roadblocks. And we make it real hard for them to see God clearly when we use certain words and certain actions. So Paul is telling Timothy, work hard to use your words to point people to God. 
And he goes on in verse 16, he says, avoid godless chatter. Now he's just saying these kinds of disputes, God is not in these kinds of disputes. It's godless chatter, it's meaningless. Because those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly. So Paul is telling Timothy, he's telling us that it's not just the other person that's on the end of our words and our arguing that's harmed, but it's detrimental to us as well. This incessant arguing, this desire to fight, he says it makes us more and more ungodly, that it can carry us further and further away from God. When, when we get sucked into these kinds of arguments, it just fuels, doesn't it, this, this envy inside of us, this pride inside of us, this self-righteousness inside of us. And it becomes this vicious cycle where the, the more negative we get, the more, the more we become more and more critical of the people around us. And we can get to the point that all we really see are the faults in other people. All we really see are the things that we can nitpick and criticize. And Paul warns that that kind of attitude, it ends up affecting our relationship with God. Because we become so self-absorbed and self-focused and we become more and more ungodly, he says. We become more and more empty, less and less usable for God's purposes. And then notice why else he says this is so dangerous. He says this, their teaching will spread like gangrene. He's saying that this division, this arguing within the church, it's as lethal as gangrene. It, gangrene is, is when the body, a portion of the body tissue begins to die because of a lack of circulation. It's painful. It spreads quickly. It's grotesque to look at. And it stinks. And Paul is using that to describe what it looks like when there is infighting and disputing within the church. He's got this vivid word picture of the relational damage that arguments can create within the church. When, when people have arguments and fights, it, it rarely ends with them, does it? Okay, if I have an argument with somebody else, both of us end up going and we try to go over here and get somebody on my side. They're doing the same thing over there. And now the damage, the, um, the dispute, the, the disagreement goes well beyond just one, one person or two people. It begins to spread throughout the church, and there's just this relational carnage. And when that happens within the church, between believers, it's unsightly. It's unattractive, and it stinks to the outside world. When they see that kind of stuff happening within the church, it keeps them away from it. I, I've talked to folks, and undoubtedly you have as well, that, that don't come to church. And when you ask them why, oftentimes what they will bring up is like, do, do you see the way that Christians treat each other? Do, do you see the way that they interact online with each other? They're so divisive and mean and judgmental. I, I don't need that in my life. I'll pass. If that's what it's going to look like, I'll pass. Paul would say that this kind of immaturity in speech, when it's left unchecked, it's like verbal gangrene, and it will spread throughout the entire body, and it will affect and it will kill our influence with the world. Our words matter. People are watching, and they're noting how we talk to each other and how we handle ourselves in public and how we handle ourselves online. The effects of not keeping a close eye or a close check on our tongues matters deeply. So what do we do? How do we combat this tendency in our lives to find ourselves in disputes and to fight and to argue all the time? 
If you jump down a few verses in uh, verse 24, Paul's going to kind of summarize his argument, and he's going to give us three principles to guide our conversations with others. So he kind of summarizes, and he says, the Lord's servant must not quarrel. I've given you all these reasons why we should not quarrel. So he says, the Lord's servant must not quarrel. Instead, he must be kind to everyone, able to teach, and not resentful. Paul gives us these rules of engagement with anyone that we uh, disagree with. Paul recognizes, and we recognize, that, that there will be conflict in our lives, that there will be people who oppose us. We're going to disagree with our spouses. We're going to get into disagreements with our kids or with our parents, if you are a kid, or with our neighbors. But just because we have a disagreement doesn't mean that it has to deteriorate into these hurtful arguments just because we have this disagreement. You can deal with disagreements in a way that is honoring to God and that actually leads to healthy, thriving relationships if we abide by these principles. So let's unpack these three things and see how they apply to our lives. First, he says that we are to be kind to whom? To everyone. How many have at least one person that they wish wasn't included in everyone? Yeah, unfortunately, he doesn't give us any outs in that, does he? He says that we are to be kind to everyone. And what it means when we are kind, it means that we are extending grace to people the same way that God has extended grace to us. Here's how I would boil it down. I'd say seek to understand before being understood. Part of what it means for us to be kind is to do for others what we would have them do for us. And when we get into any kind of conversation, any kind of conflict or disagreement, what it is, we want to be heard and we want to be understood. So part of what it means to be kind is that we're going to extend that same thing to them, that we need to lean in, that we need to listen. And, And not just listen to respond, but listen to understand. James reminds us in in his letter that we need to be quick to listen and slow to speak. And I I know for me, my my tendency at times can be if I'm in a a debate about something that I will listen just long enough so that I can uh, start formulating what my counterpoint it is. And what Paul is saying here is that no, 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 you, you need to listen fully, to actively listen and to understand where they're coming from. If you want to add value to Every conversation that you're in, be someone who is profoundly curious about other people. If we can learn to hit the pause button but before we correct or rebuke or lecture and instead force ourselves to ask follow-up questions, it'll completely change the tone and the temperament of the entire conversation. Learn to, learn to ask the question that... Okay, can you help me understand that again? I, I want to get there with you. I want to understand where, where you're coming from, but I'm not quite following it. Can you say that another way so maybe I can better understand what you're, what you're saying? You see, the truth is that we all, each of us, we see life through a set of filters, through a set of lenses that have been influenced and shaped by all kinds of factors as we have gone through this life, the way that we were raised where we were raised, circumstances that may have come in, events, conversations, relationships from our past, all of these factors play into how it is that we see the world, this worldview that we interpret the world around us. And one of the ways that we value the people around us 
is to try to put ourselves in their shoes, to try to understand the lens that they are seeing through, to learn their story. And that only comes by making it a point to be genuinely interested in the person and in their story, to ask questions and then to listen. It might be worthwhile as as you enter into a conversation with, with somebody to do like a mental stopwatch on the amount of time that you are listening versus the amount of time that you are speaking. And see if you are leaning in and listening as much as you need to. So Paul says that we need to be someone who's slower to speak, that we need to be people that are quick, quicker to understand before being understood. And only when I understand fully do I seek to be understood. And that leads us to the second point, that we need to win the relationship and not the argument. Paul tells Timothy that he needs to be able to teach. In the very next verse, he says, he kind of qualifies that further and says that he needs to be able to gently instruct those who are in opposition to him, which means that we need to make sure that we keep the relationship as the priority when it's our turn to talk, when it's our turn to share what's going on or our, our side of things. Oftentimes, in the heat of the moment, uh, in the heat of an argument, isn't it true that we just want to win the argument? We just want to win no matter the cost, and we'd rather be seen as someone who's smart and knows everything. We, we want to prove that we are right, but the truth is that we can be right and lose the relationship. We can be right and win the argument and lose the intimacy, lose the fun, lose the closeness in a marriage. We, we can be right and lose out on the ability to influence someone for Christ. We can be right and our kids don't want to be around us anymore. It's possible to be right and to lose the relationship. And I, I confess that is me sometimes. I think some of my biggest parenting regrets come from me ignoring this principle. I, I'll hear one of my kids make a statement or, or talk about a decision that they're going to make that I disagree with. And so I end up pulling out the dad card and I cut them off mid-sentence. And, and in my mind, I'm thinking, now listen, I, I have the wisdom. I have the experience. I have the insight. So you be quiet now and I'm going to pour all of my wisdom on you. And I give them this big old heaping helping of dad's advice with a nice healthy side of shame to go along with it. I'm learning that that when the time comes to teach or it's our turn to be understood, that tone matters. How we communicate the truth to someone matters. The reason why God has brought people into our lives is so that we can be carriers of his love and his grace and his mercy into their life. That's why we have relationships, that that we need to be able to influence them toward God. That's God's purpose, and that's his goal for our relationships. And what we need to be able to do is to have a bigger picture, a, a longer view of what influence over a period of time can mean. And the truth is that we can sour a relationship that we can cut short what our influence could be in this relationship by saying the right thing with a condescending tone, with an attacking tone, with a hypercritical tone. So this is a call for us that when it is our time to share that we are respectful, that we are compassionate, that we are humble as we are speaking. 
that we need to teach or correct with the long-term health of the relationship in mind. Win the relationship, not the argument. And then lastly, we need to keep an inventory of our heart. Paul concludes his counsel to Timothy and to us by saying, do not be resentful. And I find this attitude of Paul's to be absolutely amazing. As Paul was pinning these words, Timothy, do not be resentful. He has scars all over his back because he had been beaten multiple times. He is sitting in a dungeon because he's been falsely accused. And throughout his missionary journeys, he has been beaten. He's been ridiculed. He's been made fun of. People have disagreed with him. And all the beating and all the lies and all the confrontation that he's had, he's telling Timothy, don't be resentful. You you can't harbor those negative emotions. You have to keep close tabs on what's going on inside of your heart and deal with those swiftly and be done with them. Paul knew that resentment and bitterness left unchecked. He would just sit there and fester, and it would cause these conflicts. It would cause these confrontations. The source of a lot of our arguments, the source of a lot of our disputes and debates with others, it really comes from a dinged-up heart. Listen to how, how Jesus said it. He said, The good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart. And the evil man, he brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For out of the overflow of his heart, his mouth speaks. Jesus is saying that that the root of what's causing you to lash out, the root of what's causing you to provoke and to pick all these fights is not because of what they said. It's not really because of what they believe. The source of it is what's stored in your heart. And he says what's stored up in your heart, it will eventually come out in your words. It's just a matter of time. And I think we've seen this in our own lives, haven't we? Yet sometimes we had a bad day at work and somebody criticized something that, that we did or we had a bad conversation with someone else and we end up for the rest of the day just stewing over it. And we get more and more angry and we end up storing up some frustration, storing up some maybe insecurity or anger in our hearts. And then what happens is it overflows and it spills on the next person that we see, typically our spouse or our kids or someone that we come in contact later in the day. And some of us have been carrying around, have been storing up anger and hurt and bitterness for years, for decades, sometimes left over from our relationship with, uh, with our parents or maybe just a bad relationship as we were growing up. And if you're truthful with yourself, that, that bitterness and that hurt, it's been spilling out of you for years and years. And it's been what's controlling a lot of the ways that you have conflict. That's why part of the rhythm of a believer who wants to level up in his words, he's going to keep an inventory of what's going on in here. Our tendency is to ignore the warning lights. To, as we begin to understand there's a little bit of hurt going on, there, like, let, let me distract myself with something else because I don't want to have to deal with this right now. But some way, in some way, we have to be able to cut through 
the busyness and the distractions of life and be able to know the answer to the question, what is my heart full of right now? Really, what, what is stored up in here right now? It's a sincere prayer to God. It says, God, God, I'm begging you. But would you reveal what's going on in here? And if there is some anger, God, would you remove the anger, remove that greed, remove that lust, remove that unforgiveness? And then would, would you fill my heart with your love, with your joy, with your peace, with your grace, so that when I speak, that's what comes out. It's out of the overflow of my heart that I speak. So I want my heart to be filled with love and joy and peace and grace. I actually want to represent you well. And I want to bring your goodness into the world around me. And I have the ability to do that. How would your life look if you actually lived by these rules of engagement? If you focused first on learning and understanding the person that you are in conflict with. If when you spoke, that you had in view the long-term health of the relationship. And if each day you chose to fill your heart with the goodness of God, with the remembering of the gospel and how that can affect you. Can you imagine how much healthier your marriage would be? How much stronger your relationship would be, would be with your teenage son or daughter? How much less regret you'd be carrying around because of a careless word that you spoke in anger? How much deeper your friendships would be? God's desire for us God's desire for our lives and for our words is that we would leverage our words to add peace, to add value, to add comfort, to add compassion and love into the world around us. Words matter. And Paul says, choose them carefully. Let me pray for us. I want us to pause just for a few seconds. We're going to leave here and most of our day is probably already programmed out and we're going to hit the ground running. And we're not going to take an inventory of our hearts. So I, I just want to give us a few seconds to hit the pause button on life so that we can know what's going on in there. God, I, would you reveal that to us? I want to give us just a few moments of silence. God, the truth is, is that we often go through our lives just reacting and not being intentional in how it is that we can be a vessel of, of your goodness in the world around us. And a lot of that comes in our interactions with people. 
God, I know and we know that we're going to run into people that we disagree with, but that does not mean that it needs to be mean-spirited or hurtful, but God, in those times of dispute, that we can shine a light, that we can be used by you to understand their story, to be able to influence them, to make an investment in the relationship. But God, it does begin with us knowing our hearts. So would you please continue to shine a spotlight on us? Help us not to run away from it, even uncomfortable as it may be, to know what's there and to release those negative emotions and God instead to be filled with the truth of your love, your joy, and your peace so that when we speak, we can be used by you. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your grace and pray that you would fill us with that. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey, thanks for coming out, everybody. We'll see you back here next Sunday for Vision Sunday.